0: Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you love. We all want to be happy. We all want to feel great. We want to have an abundance of energy, an abundance of focus. We want to have deep, connected relationships. But maybe first and foremost, to get to there, we need to have a resilience to stress Today's guest is the author of a new book that's just been released that is getting incredible reviews, and I've just finished reading Breath by Mr. James Nestor, and it's an incredibly valuable resource to start to understand just how important our breath is. So if you're someone who breathes through your mouth, if you're someone who has sleep apnea, or maybe you snore, Or maybe you have a hard time controlling your breath. Maybe you have a hard time with anxiety or panic disorder. Maybe you just have a hard time with posture. Um, There's so many things that see breathing as the underlying foundation. And if you can't breathe correctly, and we'll explain what correctly is in this podcast, you will not thrive. You can't live a vigorous, rigorous, vital life without a really effective breathing technique and strategy that supports accumulation of carbon dioxide. So if some of you haven't heard about the necessity of being able to accumulate carbon dioxide or maybe tolerate carbon dioxide, you should tune in and listen up. James and I talk about nasal breathing. We talk about his experiment doing 10 days with his nose plugged. So he's only breathing through his mouth and the surprising results there. We talk about um, what he did just to reverse that. We talk about some of the interesting and incredible studies that are going around the world and some things that have been happening since the fifties, which is super interesting because they haven't been applied in our mass population and James's opinion and perception as to why they haven't been applied. We talked a little bit about pro athletics and how many people are actually benefiting and utilizing these incredibly powerful breathing techniques and these breathing realities. Um, James gives you some applicable breathing techniques that you can apply right now to start changing your ability to breathe through your nose and ultimately eliminate apnea and snoring and uh, even potentially some interventions that are being thrown around for anxiety and panic disorders that are just specific to learning to control your breath. I absolutely love this conversation with Mr. James Nestor and want to um, send you guys all over to buy his book, Breath, on Amazon. And when you do, Head over and leave him a review because uh, I really want to see this book being perpetuated. I really enjoyed it. I've already bought it for six other people because I think that breathing is a necessary piece not only to feel good, but to perform well. As you hear at the end of the podcast, I talk about how this applies to every single human being and our ability to perform not only in the gym, but whether it be on the track or on the field or on the rink, Um, breathing is Vital. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Bubs Naturals, my favorite MCT and collagen. Bubs is taking care of business, giving 10% of profits to charity and 20% discount to you when you take action today. Guys, this isn't going to last forever. 20% is unheard of in the supplement industry. If you haven't already picked up Bubs, head over right now and do it. BubsNaturals.com And you can use the code BEN, B E N, at checkout for 20% off. Don't just use it yourself, share it with your friends. Let's get everybody supporting Bubs because I absolutely love this company. I love what these guys are about. They're keeping it real, keeping it small, and staying with products that actually work. So, huge shout out to Bubs. If you haven't already tried Intelligence Coffee, which is my morning coffee ritual, we're looking at about 10 grams of MCT, about 10 grams of collagen both obviously from Bubs. I use about 600 to 1,000 milligrams of Alpha GPC and three grams of Lion's Mane that I get from Real Mushrooms, uh, my favorite provider for uh, mushrooms, realmushrooms.com is where you can get that, no affiliation right now. Um, but incredible way to start your day. It tastes amazing, way better than an almond latte, way better than any type of latte. Your Starbucks stuff that's costing you too much money, and obviously poisoning your body. Let's start our idea with something that fuels our greatness and fuels our greatest life and ultimately allows our brain to work better throughout the day so we can thrive now and forever as a human race. Lift, let's lift each other up, take care of each other, and enjoy the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Pekulski, sitting here with James Nestor, the author of the book, Breath. James, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: And as we spoke about just before the call, this is the book that everyone needs to read and yet so few people will so many people will just gloss over it as something that maybe they don't see as incredibly valuable. So tell me what it was for you that set you down the path of even considering writing a book about breathing.
1: Yeah, I never considered it before. Uh, you know it was just like I kept finding instances. I kept talking to people, kept finding research that didn't really fit into any specific book So you look at the medical researchers, and a lot of them aren't looking at breathing because they're focused on the lungs or they're focused on the nose, but they're not looking at the systemic effects of breathing. Then you look at more new age breathing therapist type people, and they're not looking at the science. So I thought that there needed to be a bridge between these two things because both of them have valuable things to say, but neither of whom are really listening to one another. So I spent several years just, just digging through studies working with different experts in the field and trying to piece together this story.
0: Yeah. Two friends, you know very, very well, Patrick McEwen and Brian McKenzie, obviously are taking very different approaches to breathing yeah. yet both kind of meeting on this common ground, but your book did an incredible job of, as I said, um, articulating the, the necessity right so they're they're talking about it from performance perspective or physiological perspective but you're like hey no 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 whether or not you're trying to perform as a human being or you're trying to overcome asthma that doesn't matter you still need to pay attention to this if you want to be a, a human being and like and not be ill
1: and that's what i was blown away from really at the beginning when i was talking to a researcher at stanford And I was told that 80 to 90% of us breathe inadequately or improperly. I said, Mm. what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. I've been breathing my whole life. I'm alive. I seem to be doing fine. And then you start looking at all these problems. Sleep apnea, about a quarter of the population. 50% of us snore. uh, 10% of us have asthma. 10% of us have COPD. Like on and on and on. And so many of these problems can be exacerbated or sometimes caused my poor breathing habits and breathing is this anchor that so much of the body, so many of the body systems are really tied into. And if you're not doing it right, you're never, ever really going to be healthy. That's what they told me.
0: I love that you were so committed to your craft that you decided to do a 10 day trial of plugging your nose. Uh, I'd love to have you tell the audience about that.
1: Yeah. And this again was, was not anything that I had intended to do like a terrible idea, man, to be honest. (laughs) Awful idea! It just came out of the blue, but but again, there was no real science on this. So we know I've been working with Jayakar Nayak. Uh, he's the chief rhinologist of rhinology research down at Stanford. So leading expert in the field, top dude. He knows everything about the nose, how beneficial nasal breathing is. He's you know comes out with twenty studies a year, but nobody really knew um, the damage that mouth breathing caused. We we knew that after several months or several years, it could cause a lot of problems, but we didn't know if like after several days or several weeks, just breathing through the mouth, denying yourself nasal breaths, what would that do? Um, he had never seen a study on it. So I said, well, I'll, I'll volunteer for a study. I got a breathing therapist from Sweden, Anders Olsen. So at least there were two people in it. We had to pay for the study because, you know, Stanford's super hard up for, for cash. They're always, they're always looking for, uh, you know, funny. Um, he didn't have any money allocated, uh, so we had to pay for all this stuff. Uh, but you know, I was writing a book about breathing. I wanted to know about it. So the short version is: uh, for ten days, we kept silicon up our noses, so we're breathing only through our mouth. I know that this seems like some sort of jackass stunt, but it really wasn't. If you look at the population, twenty-five to fifty percent of the population chronic mouth breathers. Right. So we're just like calculating what was happening to so many of the people in, in the world right now who are. Chronically mouth breathing.
0: Yeah. And Randall Rogan said he only had 25% left in one nostril. So basically that was him, right? So walk us through what you experienced. That was such an interesting thing. And and again, the it seems like the results of even just 10 days was really a big shift to your entire physiology. It wasn't
1: even 10 days. It was a few hours after doing this. Uh, my blood pressure shot up about 20 points. You know, blood pressure doesn't stay consistent. But right when I got back from Stanford, I was pretty stressed out. It was was 168, which is a crazy high number that I had never recorded before. That night, I started snoring for the first time in memory. I'd never been snoring before. I I had uh, recorded my sleep for the past few months. No snoring, no sleep apnea. Immediately started snoring. Immediately had sleep apnea. We were recording audio, and you you could hear us. Both uh, the other subject, Anders, had the exact same thing happen to him. So we started snoring, getting sleep apnea, blood pressure spikes, stress, fatigue. I mean, it was awful. We knew that it wasn't going to be pleasant. We didn't know it was going to be this bad. Uh, Just the the mounting anxiety and chronic fatigue associated with breathing, just switching the pathway of of breath could have such a profound effect on the body.
0: So walk us through the 10 days. Like what were the symptoms you're experiencing? So you got home, immediately blood pressure went up. You didn't sleep well right away, but I'm guessing it didn't get any better over 10 days.
1: No, it got worse and worse and worse. So what, what happened is, so the first night, I snored for an hour and a half. And the previous night, uh, I had recorded my snoring at about four minutes. The night before that, zero minutes. So ba- basically none to an hour and a half. Next night, I think I was crusting up to about two hours. Within four days, I was snoring through, through, through uh, half the night. Four hours through the night. Um, Anders Olsen was suffering from from what would be considered medically diagnosed sleep apnea. I mean, these, these recordings were, it sounded like two people being uh, strangled to death, dying the slow death, which is exactly what we were doing. We were being strangled to death on our on our own bodies just very, very slowly. So, you know, there were subjective markers. I was more interested in looking at the actual data, looking at heart rate variability, looking at CO2 oxygen, blood glucose didn't change too much, but we we're recording all this stuff. And uh, our bodies were just going to hell. Uh, cognitive level levels were, were plummeting. And as this thing went on, we just started feeling worse and worse. So the novelty of, at the beginning, we're like, yeah, this is going to suck. Ha ha. You know, a weekend, we, we were not laughing too much about it. I mean, it was, it was a serious problem. And you think about, what, 15, 20% of the population has chronic uh, sinusitis. So they're always breathing through their nose anyway, and yeah. and so many problems associated with that.
0: So you didn't see blood sugar change, but I'd be curious. Did you measure like deep sleep, REM sleep, and sleep cycles? I'd be curious what you saw there.
1: We couldn't be because from what I had been told by the scientists uh, looking at at stage four REM, uh, there's no real measurement, accurate measurement of that. I wish we had better equipment. Uh, this was all self-funded, and we managed to cobble together about, you know, 12 grand worth of, worth of equipment. Um, but for the sleep studies, we uh, wore pulse oxes, so we are looking at dips in oxygen. That's how we could tell when we were having sleep apnea. We were recording our snoring through, through SnoreLab, which I think is, a, is an awesome app, just to get a general overview. We were taking our temperature all the time, and we had continuous uh, glucose monitoring going on. We had thought that being so stressed out, we, we were expecting to see some spikes in, in blood sugar, um, uh, we didn't really compared to the next week, but who knows? Maybe that happens after a few months or a few years, because we know sleep apnea is directly correlated to the onset of metabolic problems, including diabetes. That's that's a known thing, but it probably takes longer to really kick in.
0: Sure. And so I'm curious actually, what happens? So I know you immediately switched from the nose being plugged, and then immediately did um, ten days of your mouth cover. Did you not?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So the the lucky thing is after this 10 days of abject misery of just breathing through, through the mouth, you lose 40% more water breathing through the mouth too. So we were just constantly thirsty, uh, just the whole time. Um, but we were able to remove those plugs and nasal breathe, you know, not every single breath was taken through the nose, but the vast majority, I was wearing a little tape during the day at night, all night wearing tape and, all that snoring totally disappeared. All that sleep apnea completely disappeared to, to zero within a few days. None. Um, uh, stress levels uh, uh, plummeted. We Our heart rate variability soared 150%. I mean, completely transformed. And again, it wasn't just a subjective marker. It was this is what all the machines were showing us was, was happening to our bodies by simply switching the pathway through which we breathe.
0: Yeah. And so... Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the nose when you are breathing, because I think that's important. And, and what you guys saw after taking out the the silicone implants, like I'd love to just kind of have you unravel that, just give people a bit of a visual as to what's happening inside the nose when you're, one, first when it's clogged, and then second, yeah. maybe let's walk through what it, what it should be. So
1: the the problem with mouth breathing is you're not breathing through the nose. And this is this wonderful ornate organ. If you were to like cut my head in half here, the sinus passages, all the nose would take up about the size of, of a racquetball. Um, okay, so uh, the sinuses go down here, they go up here. And air, when it enters the nose, a lot of people think it just enters straight into the nostrils, back to the throat. It has to run this gauntlet, this maze, through all of these tissues. And as air enters in through this this maze, through, through the turbinates, it is heated up, it is filtered It is moistened and it's conditioned and pressurized. So all of those things make this air so much easier to absorb. So you get just breathing through the nose, you will get 20% more oxygen equivalent breaths through the mouth, just breathing through the nose and not to mention nitric oxide six fold increase. So. There's so many reasons we've developed this ornate, crazy structure at the front of our faces. And the fact that 25 to 50% of the population just aren't breathing out of it at all, I think is one of the reasons why so many people are sick. I really believe that.
0: So when you saw the bump post this 10-day trial, when you saw the bump in HRV, it was 150%. How was your kind of day-to-day functioning relative to the day when you're... um Nose was plugged. Like so, basically, what I'm looking at was there was there a noticeable quantitative difference in mental functioning in energy levels? Were you seeing, you know, a lot of energy levels during the day when you were um, just breathing orally?
1: It was uh, absolutely profound. Um, again, these were subjective markers. A lot of people say, "Oh, that's just your opinion, it's psychosomatic placebo," but that's not what the machines were saying. And and so to have that data from the from the machines, I think, is so important. But it was night and day. I mean, it really was. I don't know how else to say it. We were also looking at our performance, athletic performance, mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. Dr. John Duyard and Phil Maffetone did a bunch of these studies back in the 90s and showed huge gains uh, in performance and recovery just by nasal breathing. And we saw the same thing. They weren't as pronounced as, as what Duyard found, but I think I, I gained about 12% you know, which, which is pretty crazy. I don't know any competitor who, who wouldn't want that. Uh, right. Doing stationary bike workouts, just breathing through the nose rather yeah. than
0: the mouth. So talk, talk to about that. So what did you experience when you are doing uh, exercise at that with just uh, being able to breathe through your mouth?
1: Well, I think you go into any gym. I mean, we can't do that now in a pandemic, but just look around any park, You're going to see people jogging just. <sighs> 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 it's just all over the place. The neighborhood gym that I go to, Every time I'm in there, every single person on a stationary bike or an elliptical or jogging or lifting weights is <sighs> thinking they're getting more oxygen into their body to give them more energy. But the opposite is happening here. And it, that's such a contrarian concept. It takes a long took me a long time to get my head around. So, you know, I didn't feel much of a difference. Just breathing through my mouth on the stationary bike, because you can get air in very quickly through the mouth. That's why people do it. What you want is that air to be slowed down and pressurized, though. That's when you're able to work most efficiently, because breathing through the nose, your heart rate is going to stay lower as the intensity of your exercise increases. And that's what performance is all about, to be able to expend less energy by doing more so you can push it even harder. So, uh, you know, mouth breathing, we were just recording data. I didn't really notice too much of a difference. In the first couple of days of switching to nasal breathing, I think my performance went down. Then about the third or fourth day, I said, wow, things started picking up. And I just noticed I could push so hard and have my heart rate stay so much lower than it would be mouth breathing.
0: I heard you mention something along the lines of trying to keep your respiration rate about six per minute while you push hard. If that was you or if that was a cycling team, can you... Tell us about that example.
1: Yeah, that that was me. So when you're when you're really pushing it, uh, you know you can breathe 40 times, 50 times a minute. I think some boxers breathe a hundred times a minute when they're just really exhausted. but we want I wanted to see what is the point where you could breathe, start breathing too slow, that it would be injurious to your body. So we know that at rest, breathing at a rate of about six times per minute has pronounced vast benefits. Um, so the more that I was trying to breathe slower and slower, keeping my heart rate at 136, I, I was wondering, I was like, am I depriving my body of oxygen? How, how little is too little? So I had a pulse ox on and I was like, okay, if I'm breathing normally working out at heart rate about 136 and I'm breathing about 40 times a minute, 30, 35, 40 times a minute, what if I slowed it to huge breaths six times a minute? you know six times less than i would otherwise what would happen to my oxygen and what would happen to my energy my oxygen didn't move it actually bumped up a little bit by breathing this slow which is so counterintuitive because you're you're operating more efficiently and an analogy i use in the book it's like imagine breathing like rowing a boat so you can row a boat across a lake and just take a zillion different strokes Um, you know, over and over again, or you can take very fluid, slow, and strong strokes. If you think of breathing that way, um, to me, that helped contextualize how much more efficient it was.
0: Absolutely, did It did. And if you look at it from a mechanical perspective, breathing simply in this slow and controlled way, especially down into the diaphragm, creates a stable trunk and spine. And the less extraneous movement you're going to create the trunk and spine, the more efficient your movement ultimately is. So I've been experimenting with this for a long time with running and running at my maximum speed, trying to go as slow as I can, nasal breathing. So it's probably in the realm of six to eight breaths a minute, maybe even less. Uh, and just like, just like you did going as slow as you can, your perceived exertion, I think is a fraction. And even when you stop, it's like you didn't do anything. Most people run and they're out of breath. They're gas. they they have to, you know, they have to huff for oxygen or to put off gas of CO2, but I've been doing the same thing and realize that the, the, perceived effort is effectively gone to zero. It's tremendous.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, it's something that I think that, that coaches used to train runners in, in the 50s. They were mm-hmm. at Yale. There were these stories about how these coaches would make the, the sprinters take a mouthful of water and a uh, very prescribed amount of water, run around the track, and they'd have to spit the same amount of water in the cup to just train them to nasal breathe. And, and you see, but for some reason, you know, other training methods came about and those kind of went by the wayside. But I just heard from Anders Olsen, breathing therapist in, in Sweden, he, uh, one of his clients is an ultra marathoner that he was nasal breathing through an entire ultra marathon. He said his heart rate didn't change the, the entire time. You know, he had so much more energy than he would otherwise. And that's, that's due to heart rate, but it's also due to, to moisture breathing out through your mouth you're losing 40% more moisture. So you see these people running around with those belts with like the thick little water bottles and stuff. You know, that's cool if they want to do that, but I don't think you really need that if you just shut your mouth.
0: Sure. sure. So if we were doing it in the 50s, why isn't it continuing today? Like where did it go over the last 50 and 60 years?
1: I mean, look at Western culture, man. It's, it's whatever the newest, greatest, latest thing is uh, tends to come about and people forget about these past things. But just like nutrition, right? Humans knew how to eat well for thousands and thousands of years, the 60s, 70s come around, were served all this processed food crap, all the crap that I ate growing up, and now it's all turned around. Everyone's eating. It's hard to find someone who's who's arguing for processed foods. Everyone knows whole foods are better. So I think these things go in a cycle. Um, we, we think that modern technologies are gonna solve all, all of our problems, especially considering health, but we're finding now um, that that's just not true. We, we got to let our bodies do what they are naturally designed to do. And I think breathing is a real core to that.
0: From your research, do you suggest that, you know, this is maybe a subjective thing, opinionated thing, but that most people should consider mouth taping if they are finding uh, them, themselves mouth breathing uh, at night? I
1: think the first thing to do is to become aware of your breathing. So, And, and that's what I set up. The, the middle of the book is like, here's the foundation. It doesn't matter if you're an ultramarathoner or an asthmatic or you suffer from anxiety or emphysema or whatever. Here's here's the stuff everyone needs to do. But to become aware of your breathing, you're going to start to notice how often you breathe through your mouth. I think I was breathing through my mouth most of my life. Definitely at night I was because I would go to sleep with this huge glass of water every single night. Just thought this was normal, just like taking hits off it throughout the night, mouth really dry. But some people, the mouth tape thing creeps them out like it's some hostage situation. Uh, I don't think it has to be that way. I think a teeny little piece of tape right here, you start off with that and understand that it takes a while for your body to acclimate to this. People try it for a night and say, screw this, I'm not gonna do this, it drives me crazy. But give it a week, you know, and, and to breathe through this, this different pathway, especially for a third of your life, nasal breathing is so important, tones your airways, filters that air, more oxygen, better sleep, and it's free. Who wouldn't want to do that?
0: Yeah, I think it's super fascinating also to talk about the actual, actual morphological changes that were happening to people's bodies that you discovered and how quickly it was happening. So yeah. I'd love to have you walk us through that.
1: Yeah, so this was something I did not expect to find. One, one of the many things I didn't expect to find researching this book. But I started talking to Dennis who said, oh, well, we can't breathe well because our faces have evolved improperly. So what? What are you talking? That's not how evolution works. Survival of the fittest, right? And they said, why don't you go talk to some biological anthropologists? And there is there is such a thing out there, and and see see what what they know about the subject. So I read Daniel Lieberman's uh, book. Uh, I think it's right up here, Evolution of the Human Head. He's at Harvard, one of the, one of the top experts in the world, and I I learned from him and from other experts and looking at skulls and doing my own research that our faces, especially over the past 400 years, since the advent of industrialized food, have shrunk. So our faces used to grow outward, have these really strong jaws. We'd have larger sinuses, these powerful faces. Um, Almost every single ancient skull has a face like this. They also have straight teeth as a result of that powerful jaw. They had larger airways. So if you look at human skulls now, they, they all look like mine. They're, they're recessed, you know, a weaker jaw, crooked teeth, had braces, extractions, all that crap. So uh, I'm not an exception. It's like the vast majority of people, something like 90% of the population, now has a face that is growing backwards, that is recessed. And when you have a face that's growing backwards and recessed, There's less room to breathe, which is one of the main reasons so many of us suffer from sleep apnea, snoring, even uh, some cases of allergies and asthma, because our airways have have been shrinking over the last few centuries.
0: Did you look at how much of that is epigenetic cross-generational versus uh, environmental from birth and as far as the type of foods we eat in, in youth? It's both.
1: Uh, so starting in the 1930s, Weston Price, who was the lead researcher at the National Dental Association, which later became the ADA, sent out for, for 10 years. So he kept finding, he's like, why is it every single generation of kids I'm treating, their teeth are getting worse? And the, these were like the rich kids, they were the poor kids, whomever. He said that the teeth for rich kids eating the, quote, best food were actually much worse than, than anyone else. He couldn't understand it. And so he went out in the field and went to 12 different countries from Switzerland to Papua New Guinea to Australia, all over the world, and found that within a single generation of eating processed foods, that next generation would have crooked teeth. And they would, as a result of that, they would have respiratory problems. So that's direct epigenetics right there. But what Kevin Boyd found was that these are now heritable traits so he's been looking at sonograms of fetuses in the womb and finding that they now have this recessed face. So in, he's been taking ancient fetuses. There's some ancient fetal skulls, and I've seen them. They have a different facial structure. So so this is this is what's happening. It's it's not, these aren't changes in the DNA sequence. So we can't say that we're becoming a different species, but it's starting to get that way when epigenetic traits become heritable, that's when things start getting very serious.
0: Yeah. So after speaking with all those dentists, did you find any um, inserts like the kind of mouth guards or or dental inserts that'll actually push the jaw forward and maybe open up the nasal cavity at all?
1: For for sure. And a lot of people use those. And and even Joe Rogan was saying he uses a mouth guard every night, which helps push that jaw forward. forward. Open up the airway. Makes sense. They opt for more permanent solutions. Um, what they found with mouth guards totally work. A lot of people don't like wearing them. And when you're clenching your jaw down on both sides, it can stimulate sympathetic stress. So little little bump in cortisol, which is not good, especially during sleep when you need to heal and relax. So what they're they're taking more more. Permanent approaches where if if you take your thumb, if you have a clean thumb, there's a there's a suture right in your upper palate. Okay. And that suture at virtually any age can open up and you can actually widen your mouth. So you it's easier to do this when you're younger, of course. The the bones are more malleable, but even in adulthood, even someone who's middle-aged like me, I was able to widen my mouth and expand my airway. So that's more of the approach they're they're looking for because mm-hmm. When you do that, instead of wearing just a uh, having to wear a mouth guard at night, this ensures that there is less resistance in your airway. So important in the day as well as it is during sleep.
0: So can you tell us how you did that? That was a medical procedure? Uh, it wasn't a
1: medical procedure. I had heard from from Dr. Ted Belfour. Uh, He had He was a Vietnam vet who in the 70s had been turned on to – he was working with performing artists. <coughs> Excuse me who needed um, straight teeth, but they couldn't be seen with braces. These were opera singers, actors. So he learned about this procedure that they would expand the mouth because with a wide, the reason teeth are crooked is because they they don't have enough room. So when they grow in, they have to fight for space and they grow in crooked. By expanding the mouth, they naturally will straighten up. So he was expanding their mouths and he was finding that these people who used to snort no longer snored, they were singing higher notes. The resonance of their voices improved. And even crazier, the skeletal structure in their faces was changing. They were developing bone in their faces, people in their 50s and 60s. So he had, he worked with another researcher and developed this device called a block, which you just wear at night and it's a little retainer. I wore it for a year and it fits right up on the upper palate and every week or so, you move this little dowel screw, which opens opens up that palate a little bit more. So it's not a procedure; it's nothing that's drilled in. Even you can do this within a couple months. They'll drill in something and open up your. It sounds gnarly; it's not as gnarly as it sounds. But this seemed like a, a lighter, gentler version of that. I took a CAT scan I, uh, right before wearing that, and exactly a year after, and showed enormous gains in in airway uh, tone. At about 15 to 20 percent increase in my airway, pus and granulation removed from my sinuses, which was likely caused by upper airway resistance syndrome. So my voice changed a bit, and I gained about five pennies worth of bone in my in my face. <laughs>
0: oh, is, that, is this something you could buy on his site, or is this something you got to get custom fitted for? You
1: have to get custom fit. It's not cheap. You can go to um, Advanced Facial Dentics awful name.com and um, they have and the homeoblox one of a zillion different devices that do this Um, I can some people like it because by building new bone the reason why we start to look old is because we're losing bone in our face we're losing bone around our eye orbits you start looking like this your skin starts sagging so a lot of people are wearing these things to build bone and and to bring that skin back up that's cool. If you want to do that, I found that the benefits from from airway health were were pronounced, and all of this data was analyzed by Analyze Direct at the Mayo Clinic. So so it's all it's all very clear that the changes that occurred.
0: Did you look at any of this data on extreme level? Because I know you've done some work with um, deep sea divers, so um, free divers. Do you look at um, anything interesting findings where they have this extreme level of CO2 tolerance? Because I guess we didn't say that. So to the audience, our objective, I guess, is to improve our, our tolerance to carbon dioxide. Uh, now, on the extreme end of this, where you're seeing people with these world-class uh, tolerances to carbon dioxide, did you see anything unique up there, any unique training mechanisms that they're implementing that allow you to kind of move this needle faster?
1: I think just practice. And the, the one thing that blew me away about freedivers more than anything is you go to one of these competitions. I've been to a couple of them. You see these people who are tall, who are short, who are large, who are small, every ethnicity, and they all have these enormous chests, these enormous lungs, you know. These people weren't born this way. This was something they did through through willpower, by breathing, by stretching and breathing. And for a long time, medical professionals said it's impossible to develop internal organs. What you have is what you have. They've shown that that's absolutely false. You, you can absolutely do that. You can develop diaphragmatic movement. You can develop your lungs. So as, as far as these freedivers and their CO2 tolerance, I mean, freediving takes takes a while. Some people that uh, really rush into it, uh, they can have some serious problems because what they do before they go on a deep dive as they hyperventilate. <laughs> and then they go down and that disrupts the levels of CO2 and oxygen. So you, get, you blow off so much CO2 that your oxygen starts going down, but you don't feel that reflex to breathe. So that's where they can run into problems and have blackouts. So it's, right. it's much better to do this more naturally, breathe calmly, and just naturally adapt to that increase in CO2.
0: I know you're a fan of Wim Hof, and that sounds like a similar thing to he's doing. Can you talk about exactly what mechanistically is happening when he's doing his type of breathing, and uh, how it's you know one just unique type of breath?
1: Sure. So, so Wim's version of Tumo has been around for thousands of years. And he's the first one to admit that. You know, everyone he's he very smart, coined it the Wim Hof method. But this is this is Tumo. It's very similar to pranayamas. It's very similar to kriyas. But and there's a reason why all of these different methods tend to have the same benefits to people because they're all doing the same thing. They're highly alkalizing the body by overbreathing. So Wim does 30 huge breaths. Then you hold your breath, you exhale till you have about 20% of your breath left. Hold your breath as long as you can. Inhale. Hold for 15 seconds, do it all over again. That's the whole thing. And I I do that version of of Tumo all the time. I love it. So what you're doing is you're swinging your body to an alkaline state, to an acidic state when you're holding that breath. So you are uploading all this oxygen, but uh, at the same time, when you hold the breath, you are acidifying the blood to allow that oxygen to offload from the hemoglobin into your tissues and organs. So it's, it's just like a, a seesaw almost, right? And you're, you're acclimating your body to these extreme, uh, to, uh, extreme high levels of CO2 and extreme low levels of CO2 back and forth just to make you flexible. Uh, that's what's happening biochemically. But I think what's what's even more important is what's what's happening to the nervous system when you when you do this, and which is why this this his method has been found to be so beneficial for people with autoimmune problems, um, because so many of them have problems because they've been chronically stressed for so long that it's just overburdened the bodies, and um, and they don't they aren't allowed to respond and relax in any way, and what I believe uh, Wim Hof Tumo is doing is it gives you conscious control of stress. Those 30 breaths are stressful. Your body responds to it with stress. You get adrenaline, norepinephrine. Um, this is, this is full on sympathetic stress and then you're extremely relaxed. So once your body understands that you can turn this stuff on full bore, and you can turn it off completely. Things tend to come back into balance.
0: I know you talked about a researcher, um, Dr. Justin Feinstein, Stein, yeah. Feinstein um, yeah. doing research on this, right? So it's intentionally subjecting people who have panic disorder and anxiety to CO2 to improve ultimately their body's resilience and adaptability to that. It sounds like a similar mechanism.
1: Yeah. So Feinstein works a lot with, with people with severe anxieties, anorexia, depression, PTSD. And he found after years and years of working with these people, having them you know, go into a corner and try to meditate for 20 minutes. It just wasn't happening. His quote was, the way in which meditation is taught right now is just not conducive to the modern world. There's distractions, people have ADHD, they just can't do it. So we know the benefits of slow breathing, how it can have an extremely powerful response to the the body to calm your nervous system, calm your brain. But a lot of these people can't do it. They freak out because their tolerance for CO2 is so low because they associate an increase of CO2 with a panic attack, as though they're being strangled. So what he developed, and this was actually, people have been doing this for the past 70 years, and the science is very clear, it's been done at Yale top institutions, is they've been giving people with anxiety a bolus, a, a lungful of, of CO2, a very concentrated amount of CO2 to try to flex their, their, I won't get too technical, their chemoreceptors so that they can become more tolerant of higher levels of CO2 so they can relax more. So it's it's basically a, a hacked way into slow breathing for people who can't slow breathe, for people who can't meditate. So they can come into his lab. I did this. Think about whatever they want to think about. He puts a face mask up, blasts them. Sometimes that experience isn't very pleasant. But they come out being so much calmer. His, his study, it's an NIH study. It's official stuff. Uh, he's not able to discuss any of the data. But, you know, the, the secret on the street is that this is having a huge effect, as it had 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 50 years ago when other researchers
0: were doing it. So what was your immediate response when he gave you that big hit of CO2? Was it like, I need to learn how to control my breath? Was that the first kind of unconscious response?
1: Well, I thought I was going to be able to handle it just fine. He gave me a double dose. He's like, hey, do you have anxiety? Have you ever had a panic attack? I said, no. I'm lucky enough that that I have it. And I, I, I'm a free diver, right? So, so I'm used to holding my breath. I've been doing that for, for years. I can do some pretty intense breathing methods. I said, bring it on. This isn't going to be a problem. Uh, I know what CO2 tolerance is. Could not have been more, more wrong. He gave me 35% CO2. A blast of thirty-five percent. So we're used to having about maximum in our exhaled air is five percent. Right. <laughs> you know the air that comes in is is, is what of four hundred parts per million CO right. So four hundred twenty, I think it is now. So uh, this gave me. I was able to experience with so many people who who suffer from panic experience, where I thought that it was just going to last a couple couple seconds. This thing goes on for about 30 seconds to a minute where you're breathing. After I took it, I'm breathing, I'm breathing, but I'm not feeling as though I'm getting any breath. So it completely messes with your mind. And you keep breathing and you're like, this is serious. Like something something has gone wrong. He's been giving me the wrong. You grow so anxious. <laughs> It was awful. It was so, so kids out there, don't go blasting yourself with CO2. Not a good trip. Um, but it was interesting to get my head inside that, to watch what was happening. My oxygen never went down. So I was watching what was happening on a mm-hmm. monitor, pulse ox on oxygen at 90, 96 the whole time. CO2 went way up and way down. Oxygen never went down. And so you. it's interesting to just learn how breathing is dictated, at least at sea level, entirely on CO2, not on oxygen. It's all about CO2.
0: So regardless how much you breathe, how much you could constantly rationalize with yourself ahead, this is going to be okay. It was still this induced panic attack.
1: Yeah, I've been studying and writing about this stuff and researching it for years at this point, right? I, I thought that I really had my head around it and doing a bunch of weird breathing, holotropic breathing, Sudarshan Kriya, Wim Hof. i Free diving, I can hold my breath for you know several minutes and dive down. Deep. I thought I had it figured out. It was just something, something else entirely. And one thing that I didn't include in the book because it, it didn't fit, which I'm hoping to include in the revised version, is we did a, a test after this. I said, "Well, if this is blasting you with this with this extremely high amount of CO2, your body has never felt it's naturally been." It, it, in the natural world, this doesn't exist. What would happen if I hyperventilated and got my CO2 down extremely low, then blasted myself with an extremely high amount to really flex those chemo receptors? Mm-hmm. I said, well, what would happen? He's like, I have no idea. I said, well, let's let's give it a go. So I did this really intense kriya uh, breathing, which is just... <sighs> just you go for it as hard as you can I got my co2 down to about one and a half percent which is as low as he's ever seen so extreme extreme uh, alkaline pH and uh, then I took this this big breath full of co2 and it was it was bar none the most intense experience I've ever had because what what he th- hypothesized no one knows what exactly happens in the brain we didn't have an MRI or anything what he hypothesizes what I had done was, so far outside the threshold of my chemoreceptors, these receptors that sense CO2, that they just turned off. So uh, I was able, I was not out of breath. I was in this, uh, you know, it's hard to, not to use quasi-spiritual language here, but uh, it was it was the most intense experience I've ever had. It reminds me of Julie uh, Bolte-Taylor, who had the left analytical side of her brain. She had a stroke in that and she was just able to view the world through the right side, the creative side and how she was able to really explore things in a different way. And, and uh, I would associate it with that. It was, it was really intense stuff.
0: How long did that last?
1: Lasted about a minute or two of, uh, and it was extremely blissful. And, you know, if you think about it, perhaps this was, just flooding my body with dopamine because perhaps my chemo receptors shut off because they said this guy's dying, because we're not used to to measuring levels of CO2 like this. This mm-hmm. does not exist. So maybe my body kicked into another gear to make that, that passage to death, you know, uh better. I'm I'm just riffing right now. Don't sure. don't quote me. People don't don't take this and blast it <laughs> out on YouTube without the yeah. context. All I can say is my personal experience. We saw what was happening on the monitor. And my personal experience was this was the most intense thing I've ever felt.
0: So, so did you? is that on the same day that you did the panic attack, like you self-induced panic attack?
1: This was after the panic attack. I had to go walk around. My mind was blown. Uh, did not feel great. I felt great that I was did not have chronic panic. And I really felt for these people. Who have this condition? Because there is there is nothing light or funny about it. I mean, it it feels like you're dying and suffering a very bad death. Um, It was after that. I, I don't know if it was in maybe an hour and a half, but. It was late. Later on at night, we we're in his lab. No one else was around. We got a CO two tank. We have some some instruments. Like let's
0: let's see what we can do. So I'm curious what happened after, right? So what I've heard is with Dr. Feinstein, where he's inducing these panic states that people actually are building resilience to this state. So I'm curious to if you acknowledged or, or noted in any way what you felt later in the day or the next days yeah. to follow.
1: I, I felt incredible after this experience. I mean, absolutely. That night, I slept so well. I woke up the next day, and I was completely energized on a whole different level. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't have a lot of anxiety. I mean, I had the usual day-to-day email stress, anxiety, but but nothing medically diagnosed like chronic anxiety. But mm-hmm. I felt so completely chill. And it's the it's the feeling that I, I get uh, from Wim Hof from Tummo breathing, from Sudarshan Kriya, where you're really pushing your body, you're holding your breath, you're breathing too much. It's that same relaxed, balanced state, uh, which I think is really the natural human state. When we're not fighting off a mammoth or running from something, that's how we should feel. And instead, we just have this IV drip of stress throughout the day. So Mm -hmm. It's something I would love to explore further and hopefully he will I wanted to go into I don't know how you would measure this if they do blood draws before and after or look at an fmri, but to see what was happening because this this was not a light experience, it's very heavy and it could be very therapeutic for people as well.
0: Right. So have you tried to to reinduce that um carbon dioxide state, maybe like breathing into a paper bag, right? Accumulating CO2. So maybe if you did some of the tumor breathing into a paper bag. Where you're not actually off casting the CO2, you're getting more CO2, and you think you'd experience a similar result?
1: That's a that's a good idea. I was uh, my brother-in-law is an ER doctor, and he says do not breathe into a paper bag. Oh, people wow. um a lot of people like for for panic, I've heard it's good, I've heard it's bad, but everyone thinks hyperventil any hyperventilation, you should give them a paper bag. But sometimes people who have had uh were in having heart attacks, we're given a paper bag and they died because they needed oxygen. Mm. So I think it's better. um, You know, I'm sure other people get some benefit from it. That's cool. I'm not going to say anything against that, but I think that once we become conscious of our breath, once we become conscious of the tools we can use to breathe our lips, our nose, um, you know, to, to hold your breath, to inhibit breathing, to go a long time, breathing as little as possible can really, raise your CO2 levels in a big way, not to 35%, like a bolus of, of CO2, but, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I, it's, it's enough for me to, to believe that I'm able to, to get that flexibility in my chemo receptors.
0: So we haven't talked about that yet. And I want you to just pull on that a little bit as breathing as little as possible. It's something that Patrick McEwen said we use on the show, but I'd love for you to revisit that and why that's the way we should be breathing.
1: Well, uh, I wouldn't say as as little as possible. I would say as closely in line with your metabolic needs. So you're going to be breathing one way when you're resting. You're going to be breathing another way when you're working out. So people who are going to say, I'm only going to breathe five breaths a minute, doesn't matter if I'm boxing or whatever, you're not going to last too long. Those, Those different levels of exertion require different ways of breathing. So that breathing is closely in line with your metabolic needs for the vast majority of us is breathing less and is breathing slowly because many of us breathe way too much, way too often. And uh, just as we were saying at the beginning of the show, this slowing down your breathing will actually allow you more access more more easily to to get oxygen into your tissues and into your brain and will vastly increase blood flow. So over breathing, you know, you're gonna feel your, your fingers get tingly, you're gonna feel maybe some dizziness in your head, that's not from too much oxygen, that's from a lack of circulation in these areas. So um, that, that's how I view breathing less, that that applies. There's some people like emphysemics who need to actually breathe more, people have uh, pathologies, chronic problems. But for the vast majority of us, training ourselves to breathe less through various techniques will then normalize our breathing throughout the rest of the day just like lifting weights or something, you know, um, yeah. and that's what so much of bouteco McEwen does. He trains people to breathe way, like, so much uh, fewer breaths than they're used to breathing so that through the rest of the day, their chemoreceptors are reset and they can breathe normally.
0: Um, through your research or even your um, experience as a, as a free diver, have you come across any resources to help people learning how to diaphragmatic, breather to diaphragm? Because it seems like Many people that I experience on a day-to-day basis are so disconnected from the inside of the body It's all just up here in the chest and trying to teach them to connect with their diaphragm is a challenge
1: For sure. I think a lot of that has to do with our culture and Brian McKenzie said He said the most important muscle in the body by far is the diaphragm
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Which which I think is really interesting. So the diaphragm I, I mean, I figure most of your audience already knows what it is But it's this muscle that sits underneath the lungs when we breathe in It lowers, and we breathe out, it rises up because the lungs themselves can't just inflate and deflate. They need something to do that. And the diaphragm is this pump. What you were saying, which I thought was really interesting about taking the six breaths per minute while jogging and notice the changes to your posture. Of course, that's going to happen. When you're really inflating your lungs, we've got two huge balloons here. It can drastically affect your posture. And the way that most of us sit throughout the day, present company included, me here, uh, when I'm typing hunched down like this, I mean, you look around at people's postures, and even if they wanted to, they can't take a deep breath because they're so hunched over like this. Right. Their diaphragm just can't sink. So another reason why you want to have this proper posture is to have more diaphragmatic movement. And not only is this more efficient for getting more oxygen, more air in and out of your body, but I just learned, and again, I'm going to be revising the book um, from A few doctors were telling me about the biomechanics of diaphragmatic movement, how when you allow your diaphragm to sink down a little deeper, it gently massages your organs, which helps leach out more lymph fluid. And when you exhale, there's this pump that helps to pump lymph fluid away from from those areas. And so if you don't have diaphragmatic movement, that lymph fluid can sit there and coagulate. Um, and this is something I just have a very peripheral understanding. I'm having a, a big, long interview on, on Thursday with an expert on this. But it's fascinating to, to think. And, and all of it makes sense to me. Most of the diaphragm is actually in your back. It's not in your stomach. That's, mm-hmm. that's where it's attached. So it's so important for a lot of people with chronic snoring and sleep and breathing problems. Another reason, they shouldn't really be sleeping on their back because when we breathe in, most of that inflation is on our back not not on our chest
0: yeah so one thing that just to point out to you is a lot of you mentioned posture the reason people's posture becomes like that is because of bad breathing it's you know chicken or the egg but it's you know someone's posture will start slouching because of breathing up in here very shallow and the way to fix it ultimately you know movement is kind of my thing is is by learning how to breathe into your diaphragm people's posture just opens up you learn this thoracic extension kind of uh, expansion of the rib cage thing. And that's by far the best way to improve posture. So people, you know, people say, oh, you're really rounded through your, your spine. You got to sit up straight. Well, it doesn't make any sense. So the uh. mecha- me- like, think about it. If I said, hey, I want you to do more bicep curls, your, your arm wouldn't stay like this, right? It doesn't actually change the muscle length. So you have to change the state of the nervous system, right? So we have to change the internal state of the nervous system, which is done through breath and ultimately expanding the inside um, the musculature from the inside, so it's a very different uh, paradigm. It's a backward paradigm compared to what most people think. Oh, just sit up straight. It's not going to change anything. Yeah, you know, I literally have to change the state of the of the muscle uh, itself via the nervous system.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. that's fascinating. Um, and this is just some of the stuff that you know I've just been been clued in on in the, in the past couple months since since the book is out. The the most extreme version of this that I write about in the book. Is this lady who had, uh, as a teenager, she had scoliosis, so so extreme curvature to her spine, and she's given, you know, a brace, a wheelchair, go live your life this way, but she practiced something that she called orthopedic breathing. She'd stretch, <sighs> breathe into one long stretch, breathe into the other, and she breathed her spine straight. So that's mm-hmm. an extreme version of what so, what yeah.
0: you're saying. What does it sound like? It sounds like yoga, right? Ultimately. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely, an extreme version of yoga, but but I don't know if there had been too many uh, resources or research looking into yoga and scoliosis. But she went on and then taught thousands of women to do the same thing. There's X-rays of it, so it just shows you how influential it is to have healthy breathing habits, not not only for the you know biochemistry uh, side of health, but but for for physical health too, the biomechanics of it. And, and this is a subject I'm sure you know more about than, than I know you know about about posture and the importance of posture and, and how that allows things to work more efficiently.
0: Right, I think you said that we breathe about 25,000 times a day on average. And if you think about that, if that's even just a little bit biomechanically inefficient or bilaterally um, different, everything gets thrown off. You can't stack efficient movements on top of a weak or a, a dysfunctional foundation
1: that's yeah that's a great point and again another extreme version of that is you look at people uh with emphysema and and i wrote about carl stow who treated emphysemas with with breathing and they've lost almost all diaphragmatic movement so they have like you know maybe five to ten percent the only way they can breathe is is forcing using all their and it's called respiratory fault but if you look around in, in the streets or if subways were open I see people breathing like this, not at that extreme, but all the time just flexing. And it's like imagine going out on a 12-mile hike and having your foot just slightly sprained, like like your ankle slightly sprained. You're going to compensate on the other side of your body, and eventually you're going to say, oh, my back hurts. Or this other leg hurts because you're compensating all the t- all the time. The same thing's happening with our breathing. We can compensate. We can stay alive. That doesn't mean we're healthy.
0: Yeah, and so for the people that aren't going to be able to see the video of this, you're just breathing there on every inhale. There's a little shrug of your shoulders, probably leading to headaches and neck pain and, and things yeah, that people yeah. are like, I'm not sure why I'm so tense. Yeah. Well, that's often the lack of the ability to move the diaphragm, right?
1: And, and they, they they have even showed that the posture it relates directly to the onset of migraines and headaches and other neurological problems when you're out like this. Sure. You know, but you even see uh, uh, muscle men like super weightlifter, professional weightlifters. There's so much muscle here, but the only way they can breathe is their neck out like this. Because their, their airways are obstructed. So it's also
0: see. there's usually some so much distension in the diet in the abdomen, there's not a lot of room for the diaphragm to move, right? So they end up being chest breathers and they get that forward neck posture as a result of yep. that as well. Yep. I lived it, man. I lived it for 20 <laughs> years. And that honestly that's like yourself. That's why I went down this path of like, How do I fix this? Bad sleep, bad stress, terrible HRV. Um, I always had good aerobic fitness, which was odd, but um, again, the ability to kind of recover and sleep was just never there. So until I found Patrick McEwen teaching me about um, about breathing, I, I didn't understand. I had no idea yeah. this was even a thing.
1: Yeah, and that's what he's found. And, and it, to me, it's so fascinating. But, you know, see someone like you, really healthy dude. Patrick McEwen is usually working with people with asthmatics and anxiety. But it just shows you from the extremes, people with deep pathologies to people who are on top of their game, ultra marathoners. Everyone can benefit from this. Yeah. Everyone can benefit from being more efficient at what you're doing to conserving yeah. energy so you can use that energy to, to go harder, to go longer.
0: I work with a lot of pro athletes now. And as far as the, this concept of, of kind of um, dynamic energy control, the ability to control your energy consumption with your breath, 1% maybe are using it. Mm-hmm. Like Such a small percentage of people are aware of. You know, the benefits of breathing mechanics, the benefits of this this kind of physiological biochemical shift that you can ultimately control consciously if you learn how to do it. So my belief is that the upward um, capabilities in professional sports have not yet been touched. There's so many people that are, you know, nobody's looking at HRV, nobody's looking at CO2 tolerance, nobody's looking at breathing biomechanics. These things are massive levers that can be pulled to push performance up. Why do
1: you now? I'm switching roles here, reporter role. But but why do you think that is? Why why do you think more people aren't aren't clued into this stuff? Because it's there's such a firm foundation of science. They've been proving this for decades and decades. But but still, it doesn't seem like it's getting out there.
0: Well, so for the last, and this is again my opinion. So for the last 30 years in sports, what happened in sport? The turnover rate of the athletes is so high. It's okay. a t- it's a type of thing where. We're going to push you as hard as you can until you break and we're going to throw you up and bring somebody else in. So so unless the athlete addresses it themselves and, and, and you know, has a, maybe an a independent coach who says, hey, let's do this, the teams aren't developing athletes. They're, they're trying to find the genetic anomaly and the genetic elite. They push those through and everybody who can't hack it gets thrown out. So there's no development of mechanics. There's no development of psychology. There's, no, there's none of that unless you get to the highest level. It's I mean, now it's just starting to come back in the last three to five years. But I think prior to that, there hasn't been a lot of it at all.
1: That's fascinating. I think you're 100 right. You, you look at the um, the span of sports stars. You know that they're they're in the game for about four years. or five years, yep. and then then they're toast. Especially with with football. Yep. Um, so, and this is something uh, Phil Maffetone and Doctor John Duyar talk about all the time. That they're like, it's not about whether or not you want to come back tomorrow and do the same thing. Whether you want to come back the next year or the next decade and be able to still have this strong, resilient body. And, and so much of that, you know, as you found, as I've found, is really tied to breathing.
0: Yeah. And the big thing, I guess, for the audience to take away, your perceived exertion is a fraction. So, you know, whether or not I can do the same things as I could in the past, I think doesn't matter. But my perceived effort as far as pushing at my highest level, I can get up and, and walk around and have a conversation as soon as I'm done. I mean, you're always gassed a little bit, but like my ability to get back quickly it's just no. There's no more fatigue. There's no more exhaustion. It's just a completely different state. Whereas before it was minutes and minutes of laying on the floor, and now it's like, okay, I'm ready to go. Well, you know, half the time you're barely breaking sweats because you can just control that energy utilization.
1: I've I found that my myself with with the recovery is just it's so pronounced and so dramatic, and that's that's why I'm still confounded. Like some people have said, well, if this stuff's so powerful, why is anyone else? heard about it. I was like, well look at the science. There, there's people mm-hmm. that have been studying it, but for some reason as as you said our society doesn't value the, those sort of long range insights. It's it's now all the way throw you out Who's 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 next that that I can plug into the system? To, to right. Do
0: it. it seems like the human tendency now is I just want the, the fast track, right? Give me the steroid, give me the pill, give me the thing. I don't I don't want to put in the work, right? Yep. Give me give me the hack. If there's something that's electrical that'll help me breathe, I'm going to do that, right? And I think you spoke with this on Rogan. It's like the the 30 year commitment to the guy. You know, the guy in the in the cave, like. Nobody wants to do the 30-year commitment anymore, including in my sport. Like the quality of the athletes in the sport has really dropped off because nobody wants to commit the 10 years that nobody sees, right? The 10 years that, uh, you know, you, you're going to have to grind and you're not going to get any reward. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants the reward now. So the quality of the athletes tends to fall, or at least maybe not the quality, but the, the pool is getting much smaller. So there's still the genetic anomalies, but the pool of athletes is much smaller.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's – I mean, this some of this worries me about just uh, – humans as a species, if you think about the last several thousand years, we've had these systems developed where people have been able to go so deeply within themselves and truly see the human body's potential. And even though we think we're stronger, faster, greater than than we were before, I, I don't find that's true. I mean, so many distractions, no one's able to focus on any specific that's thing. In, in some ways, breathing fits right into that because you don't have to sit in a dark room for a half an hour to get the benefits. You can watch freaking Tiger King and breathe well and you'll you'll get some benefits from it. But it just sh- goes to show it's like wow, if you really fall into this world, if you really apply yourself where can we bring this thing where can we bring this this body and now we have to look look to the past to see what the prologue is for the potential of, of
0: what And yeah, like everything in life it's all cyclical right like there's going to be people like us leading the charge and be like hey youngins you need to Realize it's going to take you 10 and 20 years to actually get mastered in anything you want to do, including like I'm sure the next 20 years of your life will be spent mastering something um, yeah. because that that to me at my, at my level is, is appealing. Like I don't want to go an inch deep and a mile wide, right? I want to go a mile deep and, uh, and pick that one or two things once you find what you're passionate about. Uh, and go and, and ultimately change the world, look at it in a different way that nobody else has looked at it. Just, you know, similar to uh, what, what hopefully you're doing now in this breathing space is giving people access to stuff that, uh, can ultimately change their life.
1: I hope so. You know, that, that's been the biggest thrill of this, um, releasing this thing during COVID, we weren't going to even release it. And then we're like, maybe people need this more, more than ever. And it seems like they're, they're responding to it. It really feels like, I mean, I've been in the the breathing world for about four years, really intense research and no one was really talking about, not no one, very few people were talking about it on a large scale a few right. years ago and talking to these researchers now. And I said, is this thing happening now? Cause it certainly feels like it. Like this wave is coming and the science is very clear and people are tired of being fed the same old crap in the same old way and and want to find something that will be a permanent solution, something that can really bolster their health in the long range rather than just popping a pill or whatever.
0: All right. If you can give our audience one action item, like hey, if they just want to dive in right now, what's the lowest common denominator that they should be doing every single day to optimize their breath?
1: I would say spend at least five minutes a day breathing in at a rate of about six seconds and out at about six seconds. This sounds so simple. Uh, It sounds too basic to do anything. Try it out. Check your blood pressure before and after. After that, become aware of your breath. Increase the amount of time you're breathing that way. Uh, Set a little uh, timer or an app by your computer when you're working. This is what I do. You'll be surprised how much energy you will have and how much focus you'll be able to dedicate to what you're doing. This is not a placebo effect. It's not psychosomatic. This is your body operating at peak efficiency, and that's what you want.
0: And how necessary is diaphragmatic breathing in that?
1: I think it's absolutely necessary. It's pretty hard when when you're breathing at a rate of six seconds in, six seconds up, to just not be moving the diaphragm very much. So that's why I think this is a good jumping off point because it requires you, by the way, through the nose, of course, in and out through the nose. Breathing that way is going to require you to really access that diaphragm. Don't push it. Don't don't take a sort of bullheaded Westerner approach and be like, I'm going to kick my diaphragm's ass today. I'm going to build it up. Very gently acclimate yourself to this stuff and go softly, and and build that base first.
0: Well, like, like like any other muscle, right? If you decided today you wanted to build your biceps to 22 inches, it's not going to happen, man. It, it takes time. It takes practice. You have to connect the nervous system there. I think you said this in the book too. It is, you know, it's a user to lose it scenario. I think you said it about the nose actually. You just stop your, your nervous system just stops connecting with it. The muscular should, stops working. It starts to close up, and I'm sure the same thing's happening in the diaphragm. So uh, most of us who haven't used our diaphragm for 10 and 20 years or sometimes longer, uh, it's going to take just like, you know, constant repetition to innervate that diaphragm again.
1: And, and I think your, your mu- muscle weight analogy is great. Like I wouldn't go out and try to bench press 300 pounds, 400 right. pounds right now because I don't do that. You're going to get really hurt doing that. Same thing can happen with your breathing. You can actually cause, cause yourself some harm and, and take more time to go back and do it. So start slow. Don't don't push breathing, start really slow, acclimate yourself, and I think you'll see some some huge benefits.
0: James Nestor, thank you so much. I know you're trying to build your social media now, so where can people find out more from you and reach out to you?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I got that manager who's, who's helped me out. Um, so more, more stuff to come out. I'm on this thing called Instagram, which I've just been hip to uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, at Mr. James Nestor is my handle across Twitter, which I'm really bad at. But Instagram, I'm starting to put out some stories, Facebook, of course, and on my website as well, mrjamesnester.com.
0: Mr. James Nestor, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you taking the time to write this book. You did an amazing job and everyone should head out and read the book. And when you do, leave James a review on Amazon because that's what drives sales and get him a high ranking so we can get this information to the world. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, James. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Hopefully you enjoyed my chat with Mr. James Nestor. Head over to amazon.com and buy his book or wherever you pick up books, do that. Um, I don't believe it's available on Audible yet, but it's definitely available as a hard copy. And I suggest you read it. It's a really well-written book. Uh, I'm sure James did a great job, on or will do a great job on the audio when that is out, if it's not already. Um, but incredibly, incredibly valuable book. And he starts with some great stories around people who breathe through their nose, uh, whether it be by just simply not knowing or simply um, not having the right breathing structures in the nose and, and the negative effects, the incredibly exaggerated, to be honest, negative effects. He's not exaggerating, but the, the actual results they experience are incredibly uh, profound as far as what happens to the entire nasal cavity when you don't actually breathe through your nose for an extended period of time. Uh, absolutely mind-blowing. So if you're not already, guys, make sure you're breathing through your nose. If you have a hard time, try taping your mouth. Start with really small breaths and teach the diaphragm how to work. Uh, it's the foundation of not only physiological health, biomechan- bi- biomechanics for the body, biochemistry, and also focus and the ability to be resilient to stress. So don't neglect this. Step up, take control of your breath. This is one of the most high impact habits, period, for a human being. You know, I may even put this above exercise for some people. Like if you are having a hard time adding it and finding time, take that 10 minutes at the beginning of your workout and put this in because it will improve your ability to transform your body. It'll improve your ability to grow, to heal, to manage stress. So many things added in. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bub's Naturals. Bub'snaturals.com. Pick up your MCT and your collagen and thank me later. And if you guys do, don't forget to tag me in a picture of your Bub's or your intelligence coffee because I would love to see what you're doing and I'd love to see everybody enjoying my amazing creation, my brain-building creation. Guys, thank you so much for being here. I truly am grateful for you. I've had so many amazing lessons in life lately. I know some of you guys like hearing my parenting lessons or my training lessons. And if you do, tune into the next episode and hear me ramble about all those lessons on another Q&A podcast where I go deep on one particular topic, tell you about some of my best lessons in life, some of my best learning opportunities, and uh, ultimately answer your questions. So If you do have questions, send them in on Facebook, send them on Instagram. We collect them and we answer as many as we can. Uh, usually in the Facebook group and some on the show. So if you haven't already left us a subscription, a review and a question, do so now because we always want to hear from you. Thank you guys for being here. And again, just to reiterate, bobsnaturals.com and use the code Ben for 20% off your entire order for you and your family. Have an awesome day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.